Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Tonight is February 5th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to, um, we're sort of on the road. We're not really on the road, but we're about 35, 40 minutes from home. We are partying at the vacation abode of Pastor Mark and Debbie Downey. So we are going to present two sermons from Bertrand Compare, along with our own comments and some of those from Clifton Emmerheiser. These sermons were transcribed from original recordings and prepared for publication by Clifton several years ago, sometime in 2007. We are reviewing them with the hope of expounding on and edifying Compare's work, as well as observing and hopefully even correcting some of his errors, or at least things that we believe from our perspective are in error. As we have often noted, Bertrand Compare left us many wonderful things, and we owe to him a debt of gratitude for helping to blaze the trail to Christian identity truth well ahead of us. But we must improve upon the work of our teachers, give them credit where it is due, and honor them by correcting any mistakes they may have made. And that is actually an honor seeing value in work that by our human nature may contain some errors. If you don't honor somebody's work, you're just going to take it and toss it in the trash. So while we may be seen as critical of Compare, we are in reality admirable of Compare. Because he dealt with prophecy in many of his sermons, we hope to correct any interpretations which he was led to make because of the time in which he lived. There were world events from the time in which Compare did most of his writing that would have caused us to believe many of the things which he did, which we can see in retrospect were not entirely accurate interpretations of the prophecy because they weren't fulfilled in the manner that he believed they would be. It's that simple. So we have a better perspective simply because we are living a little later in time. Of course, Prophecy cannot be used to see the future. It's just not possible. That's a mistake that many men fall into making. It's a trap. Prophecy can only be used so that when the clear fulfillment is made, you can look back 
and see that God is true. So tonight, we chose these particular sermons because we often hear exclamations of exasperation from our brethren that for the survival of our people, the peril is great. And the days certainly seem to be getting short. As Joshua Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 24, And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So we always desire that they be shortened even further. And our Lord cometh quickly, but we may not attain our desire if it is not the will of our God. Therefore we must have patience, and we can indeed find consolation in his, in his word. A Faith for These Days by Bertrand Compare prepared with some critical notes by Clifton Emmerheiser. This copy is available at the Compare Project at Christagenia. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we are told, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is interesting to note that the word evidence is also used in the Bible to mean the title deed to land. As for example, Jeremiah chapter 32, verses 10 through 14. Therefore, we might say that faith is the title deed by which you get the right to claim the things you hope for. Now, faith is belief, but belief in what? The worshiper of Baal and Moloch had faith, but in the wrong things. It is not enough just to believe. But what must you believe? And Compare makes the exclamation, all of Yahweh's promises. Here Compare is taking advantage of the way that Englishmen making the King James Version had translated a word in Jeremiah as evidence, which simply meant writing, book, or document in Hebrew. However, while the details are incorrect. The premise is correct that what we believe is much more important than whether we believe. Many people claim to have faith or believe, but they really do not know what a belief in the God of the Bible actually entails. They may have faith, but they do not understand the faith. Compare continues, Faith is taking Yahweh at his word, thereby getting what he promised. It applies to your salvation and redemption. And of course, this is true so long as by your, and of course he is, Compare is understood to be exclusively addressing the people of the promises. If you take Yahweh at his word, you are free from the burden of sins now. There is no uncertainty about it. No need to wait and see what happens. Believe now, 
and you will know the joy of salvation and redemption now. If you don't believe, you labor under the awful burden of your sins. This isn't because Yahweh has withheld relief, but because you didn't accept what he offered. And we will pause and offer our own comments. We discussed this concept at length recently in a presentation which we called Unity and Divisions at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People in Kentucky. Christians have no need to worry about punishment for sin, so long as they endeavor to cease from sin. But we would phrase what Compare has just said a little differently. The people of the covenants do not have to believe anything in order to be free of the burden of sin. There is no penalty according to the judgments of the law for the children of Israel, who are all under a judgment of mercy in Christ. However, to remain in sin in this world, one is going to suffer the punishments for sin which result from sin. However, not understanding the word of God, Christians, denominational Christians, may think that they are under a burden of sin. And that is what Compare refers to here. Thinking that one is under a burden of sin, as the denominational denominational churches, and especially the Catholics, would like to people to believe. Then, one may be afflicted with the uncertainty which Compare describes here. We would assert that so long as men are afflicted with that uncertainty, they are crippled, and walk with their consciences being handicapped they are inhibited from doing those things which edify the children of God and help build the kingdom of God. Instead, thinking they are under a burden of sin, they focus on themselves, and like men walking in blindness, they grope for ways to get themselves out from under that burden of sin, thinking they must do something to save themselves. They never experience life knowing with certainty that their God has already done all that is necessary to save them. So they have faith, but it is not the faith of Christ. Knowing that one is freed through Christ from the burden of sin, one can focus on helping one's brethren and doing the things which Christ wants one to do, things which are taught in the gospel. Continuing with Compare. Yahweh never asked man to believe anything unreasonable. He always gave proof beforehand, enough to convince any reasonable person. Yahweh foretold the plagues he would bring on the Egyptians, then he did it. After that, he told the Israelites to march to the Promised Land. He used fulfilled prophecy to demonstrate the complete reliability of his word. In Isaiah chapter 48, verses 3 through 5, Yahweh said, I have declared the former things from the beginning, 
and they went forth from my mouth, and I showed them. I did them suddenly, and they came to pass, because I knew that thou art obstinate, and thy neck is an iron sinew, and thy brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to thee. Before it came to pass, I showed it to thee. And Compray is right. Reading the books of the prophets, there are many proofs that those books were written exactly when they are purported to have been written, and therefore, in turn, they contain descriptions of many wondrous events foretold by the word of God through the prophets. For instance, when Hezekiah was sick and esteemed to be near death, Isaiah informed him that he would live for another fifteen years, and he did. Isaiah correctly foresaw the complete destruction of Israel as a kingdom within 65 years from the time that he wrote, and it happened as he said. But he foretold of the preservation of Jerusalem before the armies of the Assyrians, and that also happened as he said. For twenty years, Jeremiah had prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Chaldees, and all of the people scorned him, but it happened in his lifetime. However, before it happened, Jeremiah himself recorded the elders of Jerusalem, who recalled the prophecy of Micah long before him, who said that Jerusalem would lie in heaps. The elders did not believe Micah either, even though they remembered him. Yet the subsequent events proved Micah to be true. And the result was that the elders of Jerusalem, by calling Micah to memory, testified against themselves, because they should have believed the prophet. Continuing with Compare. In the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 reminds us, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the day star arises in your hearts. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul tells us, Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Yahshua said in John chapter 13, Now I tell you, before it comes, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Here there is a relevant note by Clifton Emmeheiser, and he says that Compare cited 1 Corinthians 14.22. The following are a couple of excerpts from my two brochures, which I entitled The Fallacy of the Pentecostal Movement and Charismatic Movements, and Clifton is taking a digression from the subject matter to address the issue of speaking in tongues.
There was a true and necessary day of Pentecost. But what we are witnessing today in the name of Pentecostalism is completely phony, and what is known as the Charismatic Movement is nothing more than Neo-Pentecostalism of the most detrimental kind. I don't capitalize the names of these two movements, as they don't deserve it. Whenever one must bring rattlesnakes into a congregation to prove that he has the Holy Spirit, he is degrading the Holy Spirit to the lowest degree. It is glaringly apparent that today's Pentecostal and Charismatic movements are nothing more than a revival of Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8, or shades of Elymas Bar-Jesus in Acts chapter 13. They are little more than circus sideshows such as Catherine Coleman and Benny Hinn. The speaking in tongues was a witness to unbelievers during the apostolic age only, and Yahweh's prophecy is a witness for believers ever since. And Paul makes that very clear, but today hardly anyone understands true prophecy. And of course Clifton is correct in stating the purpose of speaking in tongues. And things have changed since Paul's day, but Paul was certainly correct in his time, speaking in languages in which one was not learned, a miracle which facilitated the spread of the gospel, also allowed the apostles of the gospel to display the wonder of God. So the ability of the apostles to speak in tongues helped to convince those that believed not. But once men believe, the words of the prophets and the marvels of prophecy are examined, and the belief of men is greatly strengthened by those. Peter's more sure word of prophecy was in reference to the testimony of the Old Testament prophets of Christ and of the subsequent kingdom of God, as opposed to cunningly devised fables, such as those we see from the Pentecostals, who speak in tongues today and imagine that their fantasy is trumping the word of God. Speaking of that sure word, after admonishing that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, Peter professed, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The object is this, that if so many things presaged in the prophets had come true as the prophets had written them, then we must know that the rest of the things written in those prophets shall also come to pass, and of that we should be certain. We should have no doubt that all of our enemies shall be destroyed, and the children of Israel shall have salvation in the kingdom of their God. To continue with Compare, the whole 11th chapter of Hebrews is filled with examples of those whose faith was triumphant. Enoch, by his faith, was translated into the next life without ever experiencing death. Noah, by believing and acting upon his faith, he and his family were saved from death in the flood. Abraham, because of his faith, received a son when both he and his wife were very old. 
Moses, by his faith, was able to lead his people safely through the plagues of Egypt. He also led them through the waters of the Red Sea and forty years in the desert. Joshua, who believed Yahweh, marched around Jericho seven days, then blew the ram's horn trumpet, and the walls fell. However, note this, faith always blows the ram's horn before the walls fall. Noah built the ark years before there was any flood inside. It is like a checker game. Yahweh makes his move when he offers you his blessings of salvation, healing, deliverance from dangers, etc. Then it is your move. Believe in him to fulfill his promises. Don't say, Yahweh, I don't think I could trust you. I'll have to wait and see. Believe in him. Then it will be again his move, and he will make it. Yahshua said, according to your faith, be it unto you. And while Compare does not state it explicitly here, he will describe it quite well in his next paragraph. The examples which he gives are of men who believed in God and acted accordingly, according to what God said. That is what is important. God offered preservation, and those men acted as God wanted them to act so that they could attain the preservation which God had offered. So mere belief by itself is not enough, because, as James had written, faith without works is dead. If Christ left us instructions by which to implement his kingdom, we must live according to those instructions if we ever want to see the implementation of his kingdom. Noah could have believed and not acted, and then he and his family would have drowned with the rest of them because Yahweh gave him instructions, but Yahweh did not build the ark for him. This is what typical denominational Christians do. They go to church one hour a week and profess Jesus. Then they spend 167 hours a week living a life absolutely contrary to everything which Jesus established in the gospel. For that, they suffer, and the kingdom of God is hid under the proverbial bushel. Compare continues, faith is for these days, not for the sweet by and by. Present material salvation and redemption, as well as spiritual, was given to those who believed. Noah and his family escaped drowning. Enoch escaped death altogether. Moses led his people dry-shod through the Red Sea. Then Moses was given food and drink for all the multitude in a barren desert, and he was given great military victories. Joshua was promised military victories over seven nations, mightier than now. He believed, and he got the victories. Think of the many who were healed of all manner of diseases. Today we are in peril of death from atomic attacks, germ warfare, etc. Why don't we, as a nation, 
rely upon Yahweh's promises of deliverance. In Isaiah chapter 54, Yahweh said, in verses 15 and 17, Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of Yahweh, and their righteousness is of me, saith Yahweh. The organized denominal churches simply do not have a need for the type of deliverance which Compare describes, because they do not realize that there is a problem in America or anywhere else which cannot be resolved through voting and evangelizing. So they are awaiting the mass conversion of the Jews to Christianity, or they are awaiting the rapture, when they shall all miraculously ascend to heaven and leave the plagues of this world behind. Compare continues by quoting the 91st Psalm. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in the darkness, nor for the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come near thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made Yahweh, which is my refuge, even the Most High, thy habitation. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Then Yahweh says, because he has set his love upon me, therefore will I deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I shall be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. And Compare says in response to the psalm, What can Russia and China, with any number of bombs, do against the power of Yahweh? Now, Bertrand Compare was not a futurist, but he believed that the end, described in part in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39, would come with the military invasion of the United States by Russia and China, by nuclear conflagration caused by nuclear war with Russia and China. That was the prevailing attitude among identity Christians during the Cold War. And we can't really fault Compare for believing as he did at that time. We may also have believed the same thing if we had lived at that time. However, today, we see that instead of atomic attacks, we have been overrun with aliens under the volition of our own governments, which were long ago subverted from within. And as a result, we are being disenfranchised from our own society. And instead of being the victims of germ warfare, 
we have been the victims of those who pretend to protect us from the germs, having been poisoned with vaccines and all sorts of evil substances which are found in them. While we cannot rule out future military action against our governments, which are filled with all sorts of insolence and hubris against both God and the rest of the world. Military action against our people is not necessary because we are already defeated. We have already been enslaved by our own government and seduced by our denominational churches into accepting and intermarrying with all of our traditional enemies. Our people are defeated, and they will be punished until whoever remains of them repents, as Paul of Tarsus had told the Christians at Corinth that they should be in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when their obedience is fulfilled. Should we fear the epidemics which we are told are threatening us? Back to Compare. Why don't all the churches offer their people Yahweh's healing? We have had many, many times demonstrated the power of Yahweh to heal. Yes, and his willingness to heal as he has promised. And we would say that all the churches should have rejected sorcery when it came to be popularized as science over a hundred years ago. When people have turned to the pharmaceutical industry for their healing and to all sorts of unnatural and ungodly remedies as well as processed factory foods and other so-called modern conveniences. When people have turned to those things, how they can expect healing from the God that they turn their backs on? How can they expect that? That God whom the children of Israel have turned their backs on has warned them that for abandoning his law they would suffer all of the plagues which we see today and worse. So many of us are sick. And it's not necessarily individual punishment. It's not necessarily anything the individual did. The 13-year-old girl who goes and gets a Gardasil injection and the next day she's dead. She didn't necessarily sin. It's the sin of the entire community. It's the sin of the nation for which many of us are suffering. Not necessarily only for our own sin, even though for our own sin we may still expect to be punished. Before Christ had healed the sick, he frequently asked them if they believed that he could heal them. This is, for example, recorded in Matthew chapter 9. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou, son of David, have mercy on us. And when he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yeah, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, 
And Jesus straightly charged them, saying, See that no man knows it. Therefore Christians have to turn away from sorcery and turn back to their God before they can even expect his healing. And Compare goes on to say, Yahweh's promises are still ours for the asking, if we have faith. They are real. Don't limit them by spiritualizing them away. Yahweh took upon himself the material body of a man and walked this material earth in the form of Yahshua Christ. He made promises to material man, his promises of help when needed, help as great as our need. Yahshua said in John chapter 16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be fulfilled. And of course we may, we must offer some caveats with that verse. Many Christians tend to treat the name of Jesus as a sort of magic charm, and they are disappointed. Or they manufacture excuses when they fail to obtain what they have asked for. Quoting from John chapter 16, Compare has neglected a step which Christ himself required before one's joy in Christ may be full. But as we have already seen, the faith of which Compare speaks is a faith that moves one to action. Before he said those, these things, Yahshua Christ had also said in John chapter 14, He that has my commandments and keeps them, it is he that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. So we cannot really have joy unless we love the laws of Yahweh our God, as well as Yahshua our Christ. And before Christ told his apostles that they may ask of him that their joy be full, he had told them in John chapter 15, if you Keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, that your joy might be full. The message of Christ concerning his blessings and his commandments are much the same as they were for the ancient children of Israel, as they were instructed in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where we read at the outset, And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day, that Yahweh thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken to the voice of Yahweh thy God. If Christians do not strive to keep the laws of God, they cannot expect the blessings of God. Their joy will never be full. But if they strive to keep his law, as the Apostle John explained in his first epistle, they have an advocate with the Father even when they fail. And next Compare quotes that same epistle, but a different chapter. 1 John chapter 5, and he says, We are told, 
that whosoever is born of Yahweh overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And he's quoting verses 4 and 14 through 15 of 1 John 5. As we are told by Christ himself <coughs> in Matthew chapter 10, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, quoting the King James. When we fear God more than men, we strive to be obedient to God rather than men. So in a paragraph which follows, where he mentions right and justice, Comparé does seem to connect the blessings and protection of Yahweh to the keeping of his law, where he says, in these times, to compromise with evil is literally suicide. When we abandon right and justice, we lose Yahweh's protection, and yet our enemies still hate us as much as ever. This is the time for boldness, for the right, not cowardly surrender. Certainly, the war of all organized evil against the remnant of good will come, and very soon. <clears throat> Excuse me. We consistently hear lamentations for our brethren who are caught up in the world, who have compromised with evil, whose sons and daughters are lost in Babylon and engage in miscegenation and every base sin. We lament that we cannot help them, or we cry out to God to come so that they may also be pres preserved. Then we find exasperation that nobody seems to be coming, that no help seems to be coming. For this situation, the best example from Scripture which we have for our own time is found in Ezekiel chapter 14. The word of Yahweh came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sins against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, meaning that there will be famine, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, even, in other words, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in the land, they should deliver only their own souls by their righteousness, saith Yahweh God. If Noah, Daniel, and Job, by their righteousness could save none but themselves in a sinful land, then how could any Christian today do any better? All of those who 
pretend to be the next great savior of our race. If their name isn't Yahshua Christ, they're kidding themselves. This warning in Ezekiel chapter 14 is that no one can do better to save anything but their own life, even if they were Noah, Daniel, and Job. In that chapter of Ezekiel, Yahweh continues in the description of exactly what we are suffering today, because history repeats itself. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they spoil it, I think he had niggers in mind, so that it be desolate, that no man may pass through because of the beasts, though these three men were in it, as I live, saith Yahweh God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Can you think of Detroit? So Noah, Daniel, and Job would not be able to save their own sons and daughters from the noisome beasts by which Yahweh would punish a sinful land. And neither can men today save their sons and daughters from these black, red, yellow, and brown beasts devouring our lands. Ezekiel continues, Or if I bring a sword upon that land, and say, Sword, go through the land, so that I will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith Yahweh God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send a pestilence into that land, and pour out my fury upon it in blood, to cut off from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith Yahweh God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall deliver only their own souls by their righteousness. The prophecy concerned ancient Jerusalem, but it is just as valid an example of the wrath of Yahweh our God upon the sinful nations of Israel today. To continue with the conclusion to this sermon by Bertrand Compare, where he is still speaking of the war of all organized evil against the remnant of good. Don't pray that these things will not happen. That is, not praying according to his will. For Yahweh prophesied this, so we cannot pray against the judgment that comes upon our land today. And Compare says, pray that they shall not happen to you. Pray for health, security, and victory. As Luke chapter 1 tells us, as he spoke by the mouth, the words of the father of John the Baptist, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, pertaining to God, which have, since, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, 
and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, that he would grant to us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Pray for this, Compare says. Believe it, and you shall receive these promises. We must add, of course, as we had before, that we have to keep his law and act on it, belief. Concerning ancient Jerusalem, the prophets of God had a ministry that the people of Judah who loved Yahweh would have hope in their Babylonian captivity, and not even Noah, Daniel, or Job would be able to prevent any of their own children from the consequences of their sin but they would have hope in deliverance from that captivity through the prophets of the Old Testament. But today, the valid Christian ministry has a different purpose, as Christ himself explained, which is the Elijah ministry that shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. This is the ministry which Christ had said must come before his return. Only by this Elijah ministry shall the people of God understand the call to come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. But that call does not come until Babylon falls. As the people of Jerusalem had heard through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as well as the later prophets of the captivity, that there would be hope even in their Babylonian captivity. The children of Israel of today should have hope in the Elijah ministry that there shall be recovery after Babylon falls. That is where, in the Revelation, they are told, immediately after that fall, concerning Mystery Babylon, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she has filled, filled to her double. This is the call seen in Micah chapter 4, to arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, and this must be the beginning of the fulfillment of Obadiah, which we still await. However, until that time, we must understand that we are powerless to save even our own children from those noisome beasts who have filled the land, unless, of course, our children choose of their own volition to follow after the righteousness of Noah, Daniel, and Job for themselves. Accepting this harsh reality, the children of Israel must look up and lift their heads, for their salvation, their redemption draweth nigh. And with that, we will present Bertrand Compare's short sermon, Lift Up Your Heads, with some notes, some further notes from Clifton Emmeheiser.
Yahweh knows the conditions and events of the last few years of this age, that they would be very terrible. Consequently, he has provided many scriptures to encourage us as we find ourselves in the final titanic death struggle between good and evil. These scriptures tell us plainly the awful events we see are marks of the end of the age and therefore mean that our Savior, Yahshua, will return soon thereafter. If the scriptures did not reveal our position in history, they would be of no comfort. What good are mere platitudes to a person who is wondering if his family is about to be fried in an atomic bomb explosion? These scriptures bring hope because they show we have reached almost the very end of our troubles. Now, while we agree with Comparay in principle here, as we have already noted this evening, Comparay's sermons were written during the Cold War, and he foresaw the end in a nuclear war between the world powers. However, what we are suffering presently is an explosion of beasts throughout all of the formerly Christian nations, and the beasts are in many ways more destructive than Comparay's bombs. He continues by offering an interpretation of verses in Luke chapter 21, specifically verses 25 and 26, which fit into, or which he fits into, his paradigm. And he says, unfortunately, much of this is lost by mistranslation out of the Hebrew and Greek, in which the Bible was written. Passages of clear, specific meaning in the original languages are mistranslated into vague uncertainty. One of these is found in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, where Yahshua is giving the signs by which we may recognize the end of the age. As found in the King James Bible, it reads thus, And upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and looking after those things which are coming upon the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now actually, while in the Christogenian New Testament we chose to translate the passage a little differently, in the King James Version, these verses are not really mistranslated. From a literal standpoint, there is nothing really wrong with that translation at all. And Compare says, while this sounds vaguely foreboding in reference to the powers of heaven being shaken, just what does it mean? Can you find it in anything which people in any century would recognize? Well, yes, we can, but that's all right. Let's examine the meaning of the Greek words, which have been mistranslated in this passage. In the first place, the Greek word, sunoke, which was translated, or which was mistranslated, distress, is derived from sun echo, meaning to hold together, as in a group or organization, and right there that is Compare's conjecture. And he says, the Greek word aporia, 
Mistranslated perplexity is derived from apareo, meaning to have no way out or to be in impassable straits. And we have to criticize compare quite a bit here. In truth, sunoke means a being held together. And the word was used, as an example, of a bottleneck due to a sudden narrowing of a road. So it was used to denote a constraint, an affliction, or anguish. This is in keeping with the Greek use of the verb, soon echo, which is literally to hold or to keep together. And for that reason, it was also used by the Greeks to describe the act of constraining a thing, to constrain or force, and therefore also to compress, to oppress, or to afflict. So there is absolutely nothing wrong with the King James Version's translation of the word. The Greek word aporia is a difficulty of passing, a want of means or resource. Difficulty, hesitation, or perplexity. Because the verb aporeo is to be without means or resource, to be at a loss, to be in doubt, or to be puzzled. Therefore, the adjective aporus is without passage or even helpless, and one is certainly in such a situation when one has no way to solve a problem, no way out of a situation. That's perplexity. So there's nothing wrong with the way the King James Version translated those words. Compare goes on to say, the Greek word translated here, the earth, is oikumene, and refers more particularly to the civilized parts of the earth. Then this passage speaks of the powers of heaven, where the same statement is recorded in Mark chapter 13, and it says, the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. And that's accountable for, with a small variation of the Greek between Mark and Luke. The Greek word here translated heaven is uranos, a word of particular interest to us in the last 50 years. The name of the metal which made the atomic bomb, uranium, is derived from the same Greek word uranos, which was merely ended with the letters I-U-M, always used to designate a metal. We would agree with Compare concerning oikumene, that his assessment of the meaning of that word is correct, but certainly not concerning uranos. The Greeks used the term uranos of heaven as the abode of the stars and the planets. However, in the Bible, as well as in much more ancient literature, such as that of the Sumerians and the Assyrians, the word heaven is 
was often used as an allegory to describe the centers of power and authority, palaces and seats of government here on earth, as opposed to the word earth, which, when used comparatively, had referred to the common people. So where Yahweh says to the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 26 that if they do not obey him, then he will make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass. He's not going, he's not saying that he'll make your uranium as iron. To make your heaven as iron and your earth as brass means that both the government and the common people will become oppressive and difficult for them to bear. Today we have incredibly high taxes, incredibly numerous regulations, all sorts of government control. Our heaven has become as iron. Today, most people are cold to one another, don't help one another, rape, rob, and pillage one another. Our earth has become as brass. That's our punishment. Our heaven is iron, has <laughs> become as iron, our government is oppressive. Our earth has become as brass, our brethren are basically our enemies. It's an allegory. Likewise, Paul had told the Ephesians in chapter 6 of his epistle to them that their struggle was against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. Paul was referring to the evil things that were being done, being perpetrated, the, the, the spiritual battle between Christianity and paganism, which was going to occur in all of the seats of government of the Oikumene, the heavenly places. Compare continues to discuss uranium, and we are going to trudge through it. The history of this metal is interesting. Before it had been discovered on the earth, it had been found to exist in the sun. It was found by its characteristic lines in the spectrum of sunlight, examined with a spectroscope in a great astronom astronomical observatory. Since this metal had been found in the heavens, before it was found on earth, it was decided to call it by the name which means the heavenly metal, so they called it uranium. There seems to be much more than a mere coincidence in the relation between Uranos in this Bible passage and uranium. In view of what uranium has done to bring about exactly the conditions of which the Bible is speaking about here. Finally, the Greek word saluo, translated shaken, means also to agitate or stir up, and about that he's correct. And he says, let's now retranslate our brief little passage. Remember the King James Bible reads this way, And upon the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And as Compare claims, 
is, but we do not agree. Correctly translated, it will read this, and on earth the nations banding together in impassable straits and roaring storms, men's hearts filling them for fear and expectations of those things which are coming upon civilization, because the power that is in uranium shall be stirred up. And with this, although it is fascinating, and it certainly fits the fears of the time in which Compare had written this sermon, we would nevertheless disagree. We would rather interpret the word heaven as the Greeks had actually used it, and in biblical prophecy, where it was often used to denote the seats of world government. We interpret this clause to mean that at the fall of Mystery Babylon, the seats of government throughout the world would be shaken. In his commentary on the Revelation for Revelation chapter 6, Compare did much better to interpret heaven to refer to the background of world events at the fall of the Roman Empire. It certainly did not refer to uranium there, and he knew it. Compare continues with the same thing in mind concerning the time in which he lived. Isn't this a true picture of this present time? The nations banding together in the so-called United Nations, not really united in anything but schemes to fleece the American taxpayer. The nations are entangled in an organization which serves only to frustrate all good plans and finally force compromises with evil. Compromises which need never be made if the nations were not in this unholy association with communism. They have violated Yahweh's warning to have nothing to do with evil. Pagan nations and the races who hate our Christ, the nations now find themselves in impassable straits, no way through or around. There is no way out at all, and this is increasing tumult and danger of international storms of diplomacy and recurrent, recurring wars. By abandoning Christian principles to compromise with wickedness and to avoid discrimination against the groups which seek to destroy us, even the Western Christian nations have maneuvered themselves into impassable straits and desperate circumstances. And amusingly, by saying impassable straits, Compre is describing exactly what the Greeks called aporia, or perplexity, which he had earlier said was a mistranslation. The Christian nations are not literally in impassable straits, but rather, having no way out of the situation, they would be perplexed. In his Revelation interpretation, Compare wrongly believed that the United Nations was the second beast of Revelation chapter 13. What he seems to have missed, however, is that the United Nations is only a symptom of the fact that the governments of the West are bound by something far more sinister, the central banking system, which is controlled by the internationalist Jews. The United Nations is only a political charade staged by those same Jews. Compre is right 
that our governments have abandoned Christian principles and allied themselves with world communism, but they had done that long before the United Nations was founded. Compare continues with his description of the Christian nations as he interpreted these verses found in Luke chapter 21, and he said, as they see the consequences of their own misdeeds approaching, Many are disheartened with fear and expectation of the disasters which threaten the civilized nations. The state we're in today, no doubt. Note the peculiar accuracy of the scriptures. It is only the civilized nations which are threatened. And I would say that the scriptures only ever address the civilized nations, the nations of the Adamic Oikumene. Note the peculiar, I'm sorry, we are only in this position because we lack the moral courage to turn our great weapons against our barbarous enemies until they surrender unconditionally to civilized rule. Compare was under the mistaken impression that we could civilize and rule over Chinamen, Mexicans, niggers, you name it. We have even helped to arm them with the weapons which they now prepare to use against us. What is the cause of this abject terror which affects so many? The power which is in uranium. The atom bomb is about to be stirred up and released against us. Here we shall offer the notes which Clifton Emmerheiser had made in response to these comments. Here is another good presentation by Bertrand Compare. And of course, many elements of it are worthy of our respect and admiration. Though he did well, had he lived until 2007, he would have realized he actually underestimated just how difficult a problem we would eventually have. Compare said, isn't this a true picture of this present time? The nations banding together in the so-called United Nations, not really united in anything but schemes to fleece the American taxpayer. The nations are entangled in an organization which serves only to frustrate all good plans and finally force compromises with evil. Compromises which need never be made if the nations were not in this unholy association with communism. They have violated Yahweh's warning to have nothing to do with evil, pagan nations and the races who hate our Christ. And Clifton says in regard to this, truly, what Ecclesiasticus 12.5 says is appropriate, meaning appropriate as a response. Do well unto him that is lowly, but give not to the ungodly meaning the ungodly races. Hold back thy bread, and give it not unto him, lest he overmaster thee thereby, for thou shalt receive twice as much evil, for all the good thou shalt have done unto him. Inasmuch as all of the non-white races are satanic in origin, something which Compare simply didn't understand, what else should we expect from them?
Everything which Yahweh created, he declared to be good. But many are unaware, or they just don't realize, that Yahshua Christ himself pointed out that there exists a bad racial kind. For that, we will go to Matthew chapter 13, and I will amplify it so that there will be no misunderstanding of what he proclaimed. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea of people and gathered of every race, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good racial kind into vessels, but the bad racial kind. And there's a line that's evidently missing. The bad racial kind were cast into the fire. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them, the bad racial kind, into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And I'm sorry, it looks like there's a couple of words at least missing in Clifton's quote, which may have been some sort of typographical error when the paper was posted some years ago. Now we are going to precipitate Compare's closing comments by the notes which Clifton had made in response to them and offer our own conclusion at the finish. Compare also made, or here is about to make, the comment it is the restoration of all that was lost in the fall of Adam, and we haven't read this section of Compare's paper yet, but we're precipitating it for good reason. It is the restoration of our immortality as the sons and daughters of Yahweh. It is freedom from the crushing powers of the pressures of the satanic world order. And Clifton says that the restoration spoken of is found in Joel chapter 2 verses 25 and 26, where Yahweh says, And I will restore to you the years that the bad fig Jew locust has eaten, the bad fig Jew canker worm, and the bad fig Jew caterpillar, and the bad fig Jew palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God that is dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never be ashamed and Clifton says that this restoration is the later reign of verse 23 of that same chapter of Joel Compare saw a gathering of the nations in Luke but the actual gathering of the nations, which we see in these last days, is described in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan, or the Jews, Clifton's bad fig Jews, are behind the gathering of all the world's heathen races against the camp of the saints. We would only amend Clifton's words by reclassifying the locusts, caterpillars, pommel worms, and canker worms as, perhaps, Mexicans, Chinamen, Arabs, and Negroes, or at least something along those lines. That 
is the invasion of the mountains of Israel by the hordes of Gog and Magog, which is described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And they are all gathered against the children of Israel at the present time. However, in the face of that darkness which he saw as a total nuclear conflagration, as a result of the Cold War, Comparain knew that our white Christian race had an unshakable hope, and that hope is every bit as valid in the face of our present dangers as it was in his day. In this regard, Comparain continues, and he says, What shall we do about it, now that we recognize the picture is a true one? Shall we fall into despair with the others? No, just go back to the Bible for an answer. What follows immediately after the atomic warfare, or in our modern case, the genetic warfare? Luke 21, verse 27 says, And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The second coming of Yahshua, the event the Christian world has waited 2,000 years to see. Shall we be downhearted at this prospect? What greater event can life offer? The following verse says, And when these things begin to come to pass, then lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Now do you recognize your place in history when those things begin to come to pass? They have already begun. The nations have banded together in an organization. They are already amid the storms which threaten to swamp all civilization. They are already trapped in impassable straits, though many people lack the courage to see it. These things have begun to come to pass, therefore it is time not for craven despair, but to look and lift up your heads. This is the very thing Yahweh spoke of, telling us almost 2,000 years in advance, so we could recognize it when it happened. As he tells us in Isaiah chapter 40, at verses 21, and chapter 42 at verse 9, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So Yahweh has told us, when these things begin to come to pass, then your redemption draweth nigh. Everything that you have dared to hope for is included in that redemption. It is the restoration of all that was lost in the fall of Adam. It is the restoration of our immortality as the sons and daughters of Yahweh. It is freedom from the crushing pressures of the satanic world order. And that was what Clifton was addressing when he spoke of the restoration in Joel. The restoration of the years that these beasts have cost us here in this world or in this age. As Clifton had quoted, Yahweh had promised in Joel to restore all of the years which the children of Israel had lost to the locusts, the caterpillars, the pommel worms,
worms and the canker worms, the great army which he has sent among the children of Israel in their present punishment. Although Satan, the Jews, his enemies, according to Revelation chapter 20, are the vehicle by which he is chosen to execute that punishment. Compare concludes, It is the leisure to live in peace and dignity, in the world where the wicked dare not raise their heads. It is an age which righteousness never has to yield to evil, in which poverty, sin, and tragedy are banished from the earth. With this ahead of us, shall we fear the end of the old and the beginning of the new? No, we welcome it. And when these things begin to come to pass... Then lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth near. Of course, the ultimate promise is that there will be no more wicked, as there shall be no more Jews, Negroes, Mexicans, Chinamen, or Arabs. For that, we should raise our heads, because the time of our redemption certainly does approach us. We have these promises, and they shall not fail. Therefore, we have no need for despair. Tomorrow night, we have Pastor Mark Downey, and we are going to have a discussion on Christian Identity Objectives. We will take calls in the second hour. We will take calls from people that we are familiar with, because we are not giving the trolls any airtime, either on TalkShoe, or, if anyone has my Skype number, you may send me a Skype tonight or tomorrow and I will call you at the first opportunity during the program. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel and thank you for listening.